0: This is the Education Gadfly Show. I'm the gig economy for policy, so that's what. To <laughs> teach me your secrets, Busy guy.
1: What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Shirley of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. You're here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at fordhaminstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guest for this week, John Bailey. John, welcome back to the show.
0: Well, thanks so much.
1: Yeah, John is a visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, among many jobs that you keep at the same time, right? Uh, you you have an affiliation with the Trans Zuckerberg Institute, and still the Walton Family Foundation. That's is that right, right?
2: Yeah. Wow. I'm a
0: I'm the gig economy for policy, so that's what I do. <laughs> Teach me your secrets. busy
1: guy. Uh, yes, and also joining us as always, David Griffith.
0: Hey,
3: Mike.
1: Hello, David. Yeah. I was joking I with John earlier. <laughs> David works at one organization, but you have many jobs at Fordham. It's just all right. under one roof. Right. And one of your jobs is here on the, the co-host of the podcast. I was joking with John, David's uh, microphone was not working earlier. And we said, I said, it doesn't matter. I don't let David talk that much anyways. So, you know, it'd be all right. But just kidding. Just because of that, I'm going to let you say more than usual today, David.
3: Great. <laughs>
0: I look forward to that.
1: Well, Well, look, first of all, John, we always love having you on. John knows so much about so many different topics. Again, think about these different jobs. And partly that is because John's great experience. He has done a bunch in the world of education wonkery, started his career doing a lot on ed tech way back in the dark ages of 2001, when John was like 17 years old and by political (laughs) point at the U.S. Department of Education in the George W. Bush years along along with me and headed the, uh, the, basically the EdTech office of some sort, right? I I forget what we used to call it back then. I'm not sure what the lingo was. yeah. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then you ended up doing a stint at the, if I get this right, at the Commerce Department when yeah. the H1N1 flu pandemic came around. And you ended up doing a bunch of work on preparedness around that. That was, of course, as we've all learned, a big issue for George W. Bush. He was read a book about pandemics, got very concerned. And so it turns out that John knows a lot. there it is, the great influenza. Yeah. Yes.
0: It's a uh, uh, Tony Fauci gave us this book. Uh, Amazing. It's coming around to the agencies to try to get the agencies to take it seriously and that was the book that President Bush read that alarmed <laughs> him so much.
2: So.
1: Another reason to love Tony Fauci and also impressive, another reason to love books. You know, here we are thinking no one's going to read a book. You just got to tweet something at them. And look, he gets the president to read a book who makes a difference, not as much of a difference as we wish, uh, as we now know. But the point is, John knows a lot of education. He also knows about pandemic preparedness. And he is the co-author, along with our good friend Rick Hess, about a new blueprint for back to school from the American Enterprise Institute, a bit of a companion to another AEI report that was looking about how we can safely reopen the economy. That's had a huge impact. Uh, So John, congrats on the release. And we're excited to talk about that blueprint. Let's do it in Ed Reform Update. So, John, first of all, tell us a little bit about this project, because it wasn't just you and Rick. Actually, you've got a cast of thousands joining you. Yeah, a
0: cast of thousands. Yeah, the the genesis of it was a juxtaposition. Like We were hearing uh, Dr. Tony Fauci and some public health officials talking about how they believe that in the fall it would be possible to reopen schools, do it in a way that would look different, but that we should be able to have schools open and kids to come back as part of their education, some form or facet. And at the same time, we were beginning to hear from some education leaders across the country, just with wild sort of predictions of saying there's no way kids will come back to school next year. Kids are going to be in remote learning for at least another eight months. And it just, it occurred to us, there wasn't a grounding of the education conversations in any of the public health frameworks that were emerging. And two, that there's some really important preparations and considerations that need to be made over these next four months before schools open back up. And so we thought it was going to be an effort to just try to help outline what some of those considerations are and spark a conversation, spark some debate. And we had 19 people, former uh, education officials from the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations, former state chiefs, and former superintendents who all sort of helped contribute to it and helped us with uh, refining some of the, the recommendations and the ideas and look, you don't see the bipartisanship so much anymore in Washington. So that was really
1: exciting. And people with all that different level of experience. Now, when you look at this blueprint, to be clear, uh, it's not so much specific guidance like, okay, here's exactly how you should manage social distancing at an elementary school. It's more about, and tell me if this is wrong, John, but my, my read on it was that it was more a list of things that, that local school officials in particular are going to have to think through and have to sort of worry about and plan for. You know, driven as, as much as possible by what we know now, what the public health people are telling us. Of course, we're learning more every day. Tell me this. I mean, it does seem like in the last few weeks, we've started to see more and more uh, articles and blogs coming out about what social distancing might look like in the fall and what that might mean. You know, kids coming every other day or eating lunch in their own uh, classroom. What do you do about teachers that might be at risk? What what do you think people uh, are not paying enough attention to yet that you address in the report as you've kind of watched this conversation unfold recently?
0: That's a great question. And I think we were wrestling with the tension of how specific should the recommendations um, be? And we just realized, you know, that's part of the problem going forward is that there's a lot of this planning and preparations and the ways we run school next year is going to have to be very adaptive, that we still have a lot to learn about the virus and how it spreads. We still have a lot to learn about what type of health protocols are the most effective at slowing the spread. And so any sort of specific recommendation we would put in uh, this week would almost by its very nature be outdated at the end of the week. And yet what we want is for schools to be grappling with some of these questions and then um, responding to as we get better guidance from health officials. Two things that I I feel like I still haven't heard the education sort of system really resonating with. One is the number of teachers who are likely at risk, who are vulnerable to the most severe symptoms of COVID, uh, because they fall in that upper age bracket. Those are, you know, it's like 19% of teachers above the age of 55 who are likely not able to come back to school next year because it's just too risky for them. And e- even if they could, there's still going to be some percentage of them that aren't going to want to. The second issue is just, I think a lot of people think that uh, the time frame for this disruption is just going to be for this academic year. Now we're growing to sort of accept that uh, school's going to look very different uh, for the fall. But, but in reality, if you take Tony Fauci at his word and Bill Gates at his word, that A vaccine is probably at a minimum 12 to 18 months away. Mm -hmm. That's all of next academic school year. And then uh, it's the following school year after that. So we're likely looking at two school years of having some form of disrupted education in the way that we normally have have uh, experienced it. And that's a, again, a best
1: case scenario, right? I mean, that's what we all want to latch on to the promising news, but it's always been 18 months is the fastest. Of yeah. course, we know there's no there's no vaccine for HIV. There's no vaccine for the common cold. I mean, this exactly. is hard. I yeah. mean, right. I mean, we just don't, we're, we're not hundred percent sure they're going to find this. How much did you wrestle with some of the trade-offs, John? I mean, so for example, you look at some of the recommendations, it sure looks like it could cost an awful lot of money to make them work. Uh, if you need to do a lot of social distancing, if buses have to run at half capacity. That's one trade-off. Another trade-off is how do you think about the role that schools play in terms of just providing a safe place for kids to go so their parents can go back to work? If that was a priority, then maybe you think about, well, at least young kids, most elementary school kids need to be able to go to school every day. And so then, you know, how do you play that out? So tell me about that. I mean, because there are trade-offs, right? That's the nature of this. thing.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's in some ways no good decisions on some of this like that you're just you're confronted with trade-offs uh at almost every step of the way and to your point like costs every step of the way and we had several sections of the report that said it it really is incumbent on the federal government to help with some of this a lot of these costs are not because schools were fiscally irresponsible and didn't plan or budget for something these are all new costs there's no way um they could have forecasted or predicted. Um, And that particularly comes to some of the the health accommodations with the the frequent disinfecting. I mean, there's a chance that we have to do temperature checks of individuals going into a school, contact tracing. There's just a lot that, again, the federal government can and should uh, pick up the cost for. But on the trade-offs, I think you're exactly right. Like, There's tensions. You want kids coming to... There's a something that happens by being physically uh, present with teachers and with peers and with caring adults in a school that you just can't replicate uh, online or or over Zoom. And and I know there's a ton of people who are super worried right now about uh, a lot of child safety issues that because, you know, schools are child advocates' eyes and ears in many different ways. And now all of a sudden those we don't have that, and so you want kids to come back to school as quickly as possible, but in a way that's going to be safe for them, and, and also safe for teachers, and a way to safe for their their parent. But all those are going to be a- attention. But I do think we'll learn a lot based on how schools are reopening in a couple of countries right now. So Denmark, Germany, and France have all recently begun reopening schools. They've done the six foot distancing inside of a classroom. So we're going to learn a little bit about what some of those trade offs look like, and that should help inform our efforts. Uh, back here in the United States
1: too. It seems to me and David get get in here by all means that if one important goal is getting parents back to work, then you might start to say, okay, we got to figure out a way for elementary school kids to go every day, but maybe high school kids, you know, continue learning at home. And we use the high schools to teach elementary school kids if we got to spread them out. I mean, something crazy like that, but that to start making those trade-offs and back to the teacher question, you know, for those at vulnerable at risk, there's of course also kids who are at risk. There's also family members of those kids that are at risk. So it seems like you have to give all of those those people the choice to continue learning from home for the duration. Uh, yeah. and, and that can be an, an important form of choice. And and if enough take you up on the offer, it actually makes your life somewhat easier right. to do the rest of it. Right.
3: Yeah. I mean, John, maybe you can comment on this. As you were talking, I was thinking, you know, what, what makes this so challenging is that you're obviously right. There are some teachers where it is just unfair to ask them to come in, but they're not wearing I'm an at-risk teacher t-shirts. Similarly, there are some kids who really need to be back in school even more than other kids, but they're not wearing I'm an at risk teen t-shirts either. And the political system isn't great, even on the sort of the best of times at drawing those lines. I guess I'm just trying to figure out if we're looking for some sort of halfway point. I mean, what what is the sort of Politically, how can we start? And Mike, I liked your idea, actually, it wasn't the worst idea you've ever had. But how can we start drawing some lines or creating mechanisms um, where we can start to sort people in high risk and low risk categories into buckets? Uh, Do we need some sort of incentive system for teachers to come back to work so they can be the ones to make the choice, but they get maybe a bonus or something? What are your thoughts on that?
0: Uh, It's a great question. I think there are a lot of different thoughts there. I mean, and also building on something Mike was saying, we saw something really creative in Israel that I think could be a great model here, which is they reopened their schools, but only for special needs kids. And because it was a way of bringing kids who uh, were not going to be well served with remote learning and distance learning into a place that was going to be safe and give them some extra assistance. And because it was just that population, they could be spaced out and kept a little bit more distant and also safer. It's a brilliant idea that we should be exploring here in the U.S. I mean, we should be doing that like right now, it seems like. Like, That's not waiting for fall. I'll just point out that this
3: idea was in an email chain, courtesy of yours truly, two weeks ago, Mike, but
1: okay. And yes, (laughs) uh, that's right. And I think there are some schools, I feel like in in Montana, somewhere in that region that maybe have done a little bit of that as well. You know, for the kids who like really need a lot of help and, you know, where you just can't do it remotely. So, and, and, you know, you can certainly, if, if you're talking about a handful of kids, you can figure out a way to do that and keep people safe.
0: We also just have to think about. This goes a little bit into the, the risk categories. Some kids are going to thrive in an online, remote learning, or hybrid learning environment. And we just saw today in the New York Times a thirteen year old who was who was raving about it, and that's great. It's going to work well for some kids. It's not going to be all kids. And in fact, like you, what you're seeing in Los Angeles and many other districts, is that you have a, a new form of like digital truancy: the students who just aren't logging on, they're not watching the lectures, and. We're going to have to think about what does it mean to sort of engage some of those students with higher touch points, whether it's like one-on-one Zooms or just other things to prevent them from, you know, not just dropping out of the remote learning, but also dropping out of schools uh, potentially. And a lot of this, I think, especially going back into the new school year, I think we're going to need lots of diagnostic type of assessments for SEL needs. Mike, I know you're having a webinar coming up Mm -hmm. uh, on SEL, and that's going to be critically important. Same thing on academic uh, needs and uh, help try to just assess how students have processed the last five months, but then also what is it that they need to, to succeed and thrive going forward too. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll leave it there. So much more we
1: could talk about. Folks should definitely go check out, again, uh, American Enterprise Institute's blueprint for back to school. It will leave you just overwhelmed by how challenging this next fall is going to be. As hard as it was to shift to remote learning overnight, it will blow your mind just how hard uh, getting everybody back and safe and learning for the next year or two while we deal with this huge challenge. Really amazing. Well, hey, John, thanks so much. John Bailey, American Enterprise Institute Hope you'll come back and join us sometime soon.
0: Oh my gosh, anytime. This has been a blast.
1: All right. Well, now it's time for everyone's favorite Amber's Research Minute. welcome back to the show thank you mike talking with john bailey about what schools have got to think through this fall it is overwhelming i cannot imagine what this is going to be like i don't know you think our schools are up for it seems like sometimes they can't even teach kids how to read in normal circumstances
2: it's gonna be a challenge so that's what we're going to talk about in the research minute as well it's all about the challenges of the coronavirus in schools today so
1: all right well yes take it away All right,
2: sure. So I'm excited to have Paul von Hippel with us. He's the Associate Professor of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. Welcome, Paul.
0: Thanks. Glad to be here.
2: Yeah, so I just really wanted to kind of have you on the research minute uh, with me today to talk about some recent research you've done on year-round school calendars and summer learning loss. Uh, Mm -hmm. We really want to get your take on how you think these two things might play out with the coronavirus. So I'm going to give our listeners a quick summary of your research on the year-round calendar, and then we'll dive in with a couple questions for you, okay? Okay. Okay. All right, I was looking at your latest meta analysis. You did some research yourself and you kind of combined some findings from some other studies. And in a nutshell, you found that year round calendars usually don't increase instructional time, which might be a little surprising to some of our listeners. Usually, what happens is school districts take that usual 175 to 180 instructional days and redistribute them. So basically, replacing the nine months on and three months off with short instructional periods that alternate with shorter breaks throughout the year. So in other words, you might have, you know, 9 to 12 weeks on and 3 to 4 weeks off. And then you also found that, for the most part, that year-round calendars don't improve test scores. And you looked at some of the more recent research that found that. And I think one thing that we knew, but you also reiterated in what you found, was that parents tend to not like year-round calendars. The one thing that stuck out to me, Paul, that I really wanted to kind of get your take on today was that you found that those calendars did reduce crowding and they did save money with some schedules splitting students into three to five groups that attend school on this staggered schedule. So in other words, you might have one school on a break and the others are in session, so that you've just got a fraction of kids in the building on any given day. So I think the obvious question for us and the conversation we had earlier in the podcast was with COVID hanging over our heads for a while, Do you think a version of this schedule could work in the fall for some districts? This sort of multi-track schedule, I think is what you called it in your report. If so, how would you recommend that districts structure that multi-track school calendar to help the most kids?
4: That was an excellent summary. The purpose of the multi-track calendar has always been to reduce crowding. And it's been popular in places like uh, Raleigh, North Carolina, Las Vegas, Nevada, where there's uh, substantial population growth and school construction hasn't kept up with it. And mm-hmm. it was also popular in California after class size reduction, when they suddenly had to hire a bunch of new teachers and find classrooms for them all. Schools that didn't have classrooms for the extra teachers had to resort to a multi-track calendar. So it's always been born of necessity. And that's why Governor Gavin Newsom of California recently talked about adopting multi-track calendars in the state to maintain some measure of social distancing when kids come back to school.
0: Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, So the, and it's funny because there's some pretty good research on year-round calendars and their effects, but the alternative in the research is always that kids are going to uh, school on a conventional calendar. The alternative right now is that kids are home and so multi-track year-round calendars look like a huge win when that's the alternative, but it's completely unknown whether multi-track year-round calendars will reduce crowding enough to reduce infection. It'd have to be combined with other methods like spacing desks apart, not having assemblies, sanitizing surfaces more frequently, but it's not clear. First of all, it's not even clear whether schools play a substantial role in transmitting the coronavirus, Mm -hmm. a role in transmitting the flu. There's pretty convincing research on that, but it's not clear. It's controversial among the epidemiologists I've talked to whether they play much role at all in transmitting the coronavirus. And so if they don't, then maybe a conventional full-time calendar would be all right. And if they do, it's not clear that the the amount of that you can reduce crowding through a staggered schedule would be enough. Uh, it mm-hmm. might help combine with these other measures.
2: So, I mean, you brought up something in the study about sort of, um, I guess, remediation, right? That If it's going to be successful for these lower-performing kids who are struggling, that they can't—it just can't be a a full break. I guess if you could talk a little bit more about that and and how this ties into some of your research on summer learning loss or doesn't.
4: I'm not sure I understand the question. What what can't be a, a full break?
2: I think in your research you talked about um, having kids it, that it's not a real break that they still need to have remediation or there still needs to be some learning occurring during the quote break that the kids are you know not in school or uh, in this case they oh. they'd be at home so it's not a real break from learning
4: are you talking about the closures that we're having now or the breaks in the year-round calendar
2: the breaks in the year-round calendar
4: yeah the I mean so year-round calendar can be in general by itself it does not increase achievement and Even some California districts had actually reduced achievement by effectively driving experienced teachers away. But when you combine it with with intersession instruction, which is something like summer school, except more frequently, where kids who are below grade level during the breaks when other kids aren't in school, they, they get some extra instruction, that could work. Now, how to deliver that extra instruction when the whole point of the calendar is to reduce crowding is another question. When Indianapolis adopted a year-round calendar a few years ago, they promised to do intersession instruction, but in the end, weren't able to follow through for budgetary reasons. So you really do have to follow through and uh, you have to have the staff to do it and the time and the space could be done with some measure of distance learning. I'm not sure, but whatever schedule schools adopt, they're going to have a lot more kids behind at the end of these coronavirus closures than they're used to. So there's going to need to be remediation for a lot of kids. Mm-hmm. And that's whether you use a year-round calendar, multi-track calendar or not.
1: And you know, it strikes me, you know, Paul and Amber, is is that what gets confusing about these these year-round calendars is some people might, the man on the street might think, oh, they're talking about having kids in school all year round, so learning many more days, not just 180 days of school, but maybe 220 days of school. But that's not actually how it's been implemented here, right? We're just spreading out the days, the same amount of days in a different configuration.
4: The term is terribly confusing. I I don't know why it was adopted. And it really confuses even policymakers because everybody thinks, oh, this is great. There's more instruction. There's less summer learning loss. And there are calendars. They're used, for example, in some of the higher performing charter schools, which do give kids over 200 days of instruction. And that's part of the secret sauce of those schools. If you look at the pillars of the KIPP schools, for example, one of them is more time. It's not just more school days, but it's more hours in the day. And if you look at many of the countries that outperform the U.S. in international tests, Great Britain and so on, uh, they have more days in school. So I'm I'm actually uh, it doesn't work every time. It depends on how you use the extra days. But I'm in favor of those kinds of calendars. But year-round calendars are a different animal,
1: so, especially the multi-track kind. Right. So someday, if and when we finally get past this crisis, uh, have a vaccine. You know, th- there are people saying, "Hey, let's let's have some kind of surge where you skip a summer." You know, maybe yeah. it's next summer or the summer after that. And you just mm-hmm. keep going with the idea of increasing the number of instructional days. Uh, that, that's a different notion than what we see in the research so far. And I think you're right. Look, I mean, I, I, my understanding is there's good reason to think that the reason that KIPP and some of the other high-performing charter networks get better <laughs> results is simply that kids are spending more time learning. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, that's an important factor.
3: I'm not sure I'm totally following the sort of distribution of teachers in this staggered scenario, right? So presumably they're not going to work 365 days a year, right? And so the implication of what you were saying is that we could spread students out. It seems to me if the goal is to spread students out over more time, then we also have to spread teachers out over more time. So can you help me just understand sort of what that might look like?
4: Yeah, there are some logistical challenges to this calendar, but when it was implemented in uh, Wake County, North Carolina, it's Greater Raleigh, for example, the teachers are on the same schedules as the students. So, uh, okay. you know, you, you've, you've got a group of, if you look at, there's their color-coded calendar. So if you've got a group of red students and a group of green students and a group of yellow students, and you've also got red, green, and yellow teachers, and they're all going to school on the same on this coordinated uh, multi-track schedule.
3: Okay, and are are two of those three groups in
4: school at any given time? Is that the idea? Most commonly, kids are divided, kids and teachers divided into four groups and three are in school at any given time. But there's also variations where four out of five are in school at any given time. It depends how much crowding you're trying to solve. There are some Los Angeles schools that adopted something called a Concept Six calendar, where two out of three kids were in school at any given time. And when when you get to that level of reduction, you start having to actually reduce the number of instruction days. Well, so that brings up
3: another. I mean, this may be outside (laughs) the scope of our discussion, right? But I'm starting to wonder if if once we're staggering teachers and if we're so desperate to find class space for students, I'm just going to say it like weekends strike me as a really inefficient concept under the current <laughs> circumstances. Universal weekends, like people need weekends, right? But, you know, weekends for society is effectively reducing our utilization of classroom space by, I don't know, it's gotta be, you know, 30%, right? So you don't have to comment on that if you, if you don't want to, but it does seem, you know, it does seem to me that as politically unaccept- unpalatable as that might sound, it makes a lot of mathematical sense to me to put that on the table.
4: Well, I mean, it's a significant labor issue, right? One of the yeah. one of the, of the American labor movement was to get Saturdays off, and that was uh, over 100 years ago now. But, yeah, but I also um, know people anybody, who work it, on it, Saturdays, you know? It, yeah, it, and, and there are, you know, you, you, have to, you have to deal with emergency periods differently. What, one of the ways that some of these high-performing charter schools get uh, kids who are behind back closer to where they need to be to be college-ready and so on is with some Saturday instruction. The KIPP schools, for example, do that, or at least used to, So it might make sense to do that for some of these students for at least a limited length of time. And, you know, it would have to be worked out with the teachers unions in each district. Um, If, you know, in in Milwaukee, for example, teachers effectively had the month of April off. The contract that they worked out with the district said that they basically didn't have to work in April. And so you could argue with them that, you know, they kind of owe these kids effectively 30 Saturdays or 20 Saturdays. Mm -hmm. uh, And that might make up for the lost time. Now, it's, of course, it's difficult because a lot of parents are working, a lot of teachers are working uh, parents as well. And what do you do uh, if their kids aren't in school when they're supposed to be teaching? So it's, it's logistically very difficult. And right. A lot of right. these staggered schedules have these kinds of challenges.
1: <laughs> and I, I think logistically yeah. very difficult is, is a great way to say uh, say it about everything that we're contemplating for the <laughs> yes. fall.
4: When they write yeah. the history books,
3: everything from 2020 to whenever it is, it's just going to say logistically very difficult. It's going to be dragons. Hey, Paul, yeah. one,
2: one other quick question because um, this is uh, we noticed your piece in Ed Next, right? Where, where basically you said lots more kids than usual are going to need to repeat a grade. Uh, Mike said something similar. Uh, and, and so and got a lot of flack for it. So I, I guess we would enjoy hearing from you. I mean, do you, do you really think that there's political appetite? And, and how difficult is that to say that, you know, we're going to have to retain a lot more kids, hold back a grade? I mean, how are you kind of feeling about that and sensing that that could actually work or be received or not?
4: I mean, students are effectively not getting what they're used to getting for about a quarter of this school year. Uh, mm-hmm. and so we know that, uh, and, and that's more true in some districts than in others, you know, districts that didn't really deliver any online teaching for the whole month of April are going to have this problem more than others. So there are going to be a lot more kids who aren't ready for the new grade when, uh, schools do reopen and when, and when, and if, whatever that is, and we're going to have to deal with that some kind of way. One solution would be repeating a grade and other solutions would be having the measure of Saturday school or skipping a summer. Uh, but it's going to have to be addressed.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I, you know, maybe I'll take another crack at making that argument sometime <laughs> that t- might go over a little better than uh, than my Washington Post article did. You should see, Paul. People loved it. They loved the idea. <laughs> the
3: idea
4: <laughs> mean, these yeah. things are often viewed as punitive, right? But uh, yep. you know, ultimately, yep. we've we've just got to do something to get kids up to the level where they need to be, or at least where the level the level that we're used to seeing them at when they start. Um, first or second grade or whatever it is. That's right.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, we could go on and on, everybody, but I'm afraid that that is all the time that we've got. Paul, thanks so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it.
4: Thanks. Enjoyed having you. <laughs> Enjoyed and, being here.
1: <laughs> yes. And until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off.
4: The Education
0: Gap shows Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.